Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential, radio talk show about television that will play part two of our conversation with Walter Koenig in our second hour. Walter Koenig, the actor known around the world as Mr. Chekhov on the original Star Trek and the first seven Star Trek movies, and Alfred Bester on Babylon 5. Walter Koenig will join us in our second hour. Hour. We hope you stay tuned for that in the meantime. And speaking of Star Trek, or at least the next generation of Star Trek shows, we'll begin our first hour by playing part two, or I guess part three, uh, <laughs> of our conversation with television writer-producer Paul Robert Coyle. Paul is with us via Zoom. Paul's credits in television as a television writer and in some cases as a story editor or Producer includes Streets of San Francisco, Barnaby Jones, Simon and Simon, Jake and the Fat Man, Xena, Warrior Princess, Hercules, The Incredible Journeys, Stephen King's The Dead Zone, sort of. We'll get into that later on. Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek The Next Generation, and many other popular TV shows. Paul's memoir, Swords, Starships, and Superheroes from Star Trek to Xena, to Hercules, a TV writer's life scripting the stories of heroes is not only the story of Paul's 40-plus year journey as a writer, story editor, and producer for television, but includes many useful lessons on how to pursue a career as a professional writer, whether you want to write for television or any other form of writing. Swords, starships, and superheroes available in paperback and as an ebook through our friends at Jacobs Brown Media Group. You can also find it at Amazon.com, other online retailers. Paul, welcome back to our program. Thank you, Ed. It's good to be here for uh, another part of our never-ending interview here. Yes, ep- <laughs> well, as, as I like to say, epic length. And like good epics, you know, there's a lot of drama, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, but it flows and it moves. And uh, as I say, there are a lot of things about you that I didn't know about before, and there are a lot of things about uh, the industry that I didn't know before. We'll get to that in just a second. But when Paul visited us in December and just after the first of the year, we focused mostly on... Uh, the first part of Paul's career, which is where he wrote for private eye shows, uh, for Quinn Martin, for Crazy Like a Fox, and yeah, how he spent the first half of his career as a writer. But like many smart people, Paul uh, learned how to adapt as the industry adapt, and um, that is how he ended up writing for sci-fi and fantasy in the uh, 90s and early 2000s, and along the way, and this kind of bridges the two halves of your career, Paul, uh, your introduction to uh, sci-fi and Star Trek The Next Generation in particular had to do with one of the relationships you built in the early part of the 80s when you worked with Michael Piller. Yes, well, Mike Piller was story editor on Simon and Simon, and um, prior to that, I had written all those QM shows and various shows, but... uh, then after about five or six years, uh, the industry changed. The, the format of dramatic shows, they became dramedies and ensemble pieces, uh, and comedy dramas and so forth. And the, my kind of writing on shows like Streets in San Francisco was considered old-fashioned, so I had to reinvent myself. And I wrote a bunch of specs for different shows on TV at the time, one of which was Simon and Simon. And Mike Piller, who was story editor over there, bought that script. And then uh, I came on and I, I, I wrote a second one on assignment. So we established a, you know, a, a relationship and a friendship at the time. 
And then I got drawn off onto another show, Crazy Like a Fox, where I went on staff. I think we talked about that last time. Mm -hmm. But I always kept in touch with Mike. And um, over the next five or six years, um, he went from show to show. And I typically he'd call me in to pitch to whatever the new show was, and then it would be canceled before <laughs> before any, any, you know anything happened. But then finally he landed on Star Trek: Next Generation. Now, prior to this, I had, I certainly had a long-standing interest in sci-fi and fantasy. As as a kid, you know, I was into comic books, and and then at some point in the early '90s, I wrote an episode of Superboy, a half-hour syndicated show, but that. that it was almost at the end of that show's four-year run. So uh, Mike called me in to Star Trek Next Gen. I didn't even have to contact him. And he, um, I don't know, he, he thought I was particularly, uh, that I had an imagination or whatever, that, that my Simon to Simon scripts reflected whatever sensibility he was looking for in writers for, for Star Trek Next Gen. So first he called me in for a rewrite of some somebody else's script, and uh, I did a couple of those behind-the-scenes rewrites that I ended up not getting credit for. Which I talk about in the book. A writer has a lot, <laughs> does a lot of assignments that they, their name doesn't necessarily end up on, but yes. you get paid for it. But money, money is still green, and, and the bank still right. accepts it. So, <laughs> That's right. so, um, so I never did end up with an on-screen credit on uh, Star Trek: Next Gen. But then, by the time Deep Space Nine came along, which Mike co-created with Rick Berman. I was in on the ground floor of that. Again, I did a rewrite of some somebody else's script uh, to begin with. And then uh, finally came in and pitched stories of my own and connected with one, uh, an episode that was called Whispers, which uh, aired in the show's second season, which I got a full written by credit on. And then to jump ahead a few years, Voyager, Star Trek Voyager, same same deal. Uh, Mike co-created it, and he called me in right on the ground floor, and I, I pitched uh, stories, and I got, got an assignment right away. I believe I was the first freelance uh, writer to get an assignment on that show. And then again, I got pulled away into other shows. So those were I, that, that was my involvement with the Star Trek universe, thanks to Mike Pillar and my working on Simon and Simon, <laughs> because that's how you get work in this industry. You do a good job for somebody, and they remember you, and they bring you on to another show that might be an entirely different genre. But that opened up a whole new world for me, which I then pursued a trajectory apart from the cops and PI shows that I've been doing up to that point. Swords, Starships, and Superheroes, Paul Robert Coyle's memoir about his 40-year career writing for network television and syndicated, first-run syndicated television. Swords, Starships, and Superheroes, available in paperback and as an ebook through our friends at Jacobs Brown Media Group. You can also find it at Amazon.com, other online retailers. Okay, Whispers, which is the Deep Space Nine you mentioned a little while ago. Okay, that was the first one... And you correct me, the only Deep Space Nine where you have full credit for, but you were, I believe you worked on another uh, Deep Space Nine that was a variation of The Prisoner? Well, it was an early, it was a first season episode uh, called Move Along Home. It originally had a different title. Fans will remember it. It's kind of an infamous episode, not a particularly well regarded one. Uh, and there's a reason for that, which I talk about in the book, I think. But this was a, Mike, Mike had written a story for this one, but for whatever reason, he didn't do his own script. He hired another freelancer to wrote, wrote a script. He wasn't happy with that. He brought me in to rewrite that that particular writer. So I did a draft or two, and he wanted to open it up. He, this was a story where the characters are zapped into like a video game. Uh, it, it, so they're forced to play a series of life-threatening uh, games to move on to the next uh, level. And he wanted this to, he, he cited the prisoner, which was the Patrick McGowan show, mm -hmm. you know, film location in 
I think, mm -hmm. a, a very visual outdoor mm -hmm. show. He wanted this to be in that style. The previous draft was was all interior. So he wanted to open it up, and he, he gave me that job. So he was willing to go on location and shoot for five days. So I did that. I opened up the story, I, you know, and I adjusted the characters' voices and made other dramatic changes within it. But then after I was done with it and moved on, suddenly, you know, he was told we can't afford to do this at all. So it, it was forced to move into a series of sets, uh, you know, a labyrinth that was all indoors and dark sets. And another team of writers came in and did that final draft. And then Mike himself did a production uh, draft. So those were those are four or five writers, all of, all fighting for credit. As the middle person in that uh, group, I was very unlikely to come away with credit. Credit is granted by the Writers Guild, yeah. you know, an arbitration either that reads all the drafts of the various writers um, without knowing, you know, the names of the writers. So it's anonymous and fair. Anyway, I was denied credit on that, but I did do a lot of work on it and got, you know, made a fair amount of money off of that. And even though, you know, my work was ultimately not used. A little of it emerged into the final uh, product. Mike thought I did a good job, so that's why he was still open to hear more pitches from me. And by the way, the, the reason that episode, I think, is a little regarded by fans is because it was so interior and claustrophobic and, frankly, looked cheap yeah. on, on television. And that's my take on it anyway. I, I thought it was a decent story and a you know worthwhile uh, script. Um, but then I came in and pitched stories and finally uh, connected with the one that became Whispers, which... Very popular episode centered on the Colmini character, who was the chief O'Brien on the show, who was a carryover character from Star Trek Next Gen. Then I got drawn away to other shows. I did continue to pitch, oh, I, I had pitched to Deep Space Nine a third, what would have been my third uh, episode, uh, a story they really liked and said, we were really going to do this, but we can't, and not yet, because we're backed up, uh, you know, so they, they said, oh, keep calling in. So uh, keep calling in and we'll keep you appraised, or we'll call you. And they did. Every three or four months, I'd get a call from them saying that story of yours is, is on the list, but not yet. Please, you know, stand by, be patient. And, and this went on for two and a half years. And this was not unusual in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. They heard a lot of stories and even the ones that they wanted to do, they couldn't do them all at once. So two and a half years later, I got the call. We were finally ready to go ahead with this, uh, this story. And I couldn't because I was on staff at Hercules at that time. So I did get paid for it. But again, that's something that I ended up without my name on it. So, well, basically, and, we're telling three episodes of Deep Space Nine. Yes, well, okay, okay, three episodes of Deep Space Nine, only one with your name on it. But as we said earlier, you got paid for your time and your work, and you're, you're recognized for your other stuff, and money is still green whether your name is on it or not. But before we move on, I understand that uh, Whispers, the one that uh, the, the, the Deep Space Nine that you wrote, that focused on Cole Meaning, I, I understand Cole Meaning really, really liked that script and let you know that. Well, he let me know. I didn't go on the set of that one for whatever reason. I don't know why. I usually like to go by the, the sets of shows of mine that are, that are shooting, but uh, maybe I was involved with something else when it was filming, so I didn't get there. So I never met him at the time. So flash forward a few years. I'm on Hercules. I'm writing for Hercules and Xena, and I'm going to the conventions, and we had a big convention that year in Pasadena. And I was one of the speakers on stage, and uh, a lot of the act cast members were there, and uh, Lucy and Kevin, I think, were there, from, been flown over from New Zealand. And I'm backstage, and uh, our executive producer tugs me on the on the shirt and uh, says, oh, somebody I want you to meet. And he, he brings me over, and here's Cole Meany. 
<laughs> was there because his son or daughter was a big fan of uh, you know Hercules and Xena, and so so oh cold nice to meet you I wrote whispers and he was very you know that was a heavy episode for him he yeah. was in every yeah it was his point of total point of view um, the twist at the end is that he's a clone that he who thinks he's a real O'Brien but uh, you know he's really a, a programmed enemy agent to to commit an assassination or something so he was on camera more heavily in that episode than he had, than he had ever been. And he gave a terrific uh, performance, so I got to meet him under those circumstances. Yeah, it's, it's unusual. A, I usually meet the people on the set, but uh, not that time. Yeah, but it's a little side reward, a little bonus reward to find out uh, not not only to to meet the actor, but to realize just how much he really appreciated what you wrote. Sure. Yeah, it's always good to to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's still uh, still very active. I see him in, in parts all the time. Yeah. Sword, starships, and superheroes from Star Trek to Xena to Hercules, a TV writer's life scripting the stories of heroes available in paperback and as an ebook through our friends at Jacobs Brown Media Group. Uh, you can also find it Amazon.com wherever. Books are sold uh, online. Paul Robert Coyle is the author of Sword Starships and Superheroes. He is with us via Zoom today. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. We mentioned this uh, in the first half of our conversation. I'll mention this again. I've known Paul for the better part of 30 years. Uh, there are a lot of things I learned about Paul as a result of reading his book. And there are a number of things about television that I learned as a result of reading Sword, Starships, and Superheroes, one of which is something called character creation fees. This is something I didn't know about before. You got one with regard to when you worked on Jake and the Fat Man. You missed out on one with regard to Voyager. Tell, tell our listeners what a character creation fee is. Well, when a writer, when a freelance writer or a staff writer, when a writer of an individual episode of a show creates a character, with a guest star character within that one hour, and for whatever reason the producers decide to bring that character back in later episodes, either once or many times, the writer who originated that character gets a um, kind of a mini residual. It's uh, called a character creation fee, and you get a payment... Uh, for every time that character is, is used subsequently. Jake and the Fat Man, I, I wrote an episode that was a, it was the show's third season premiere, and there was a, they were in Hawaii at that point, and uh, McCabe, the, the Bill Conrad character, had a new secretary, so I gave her a name, whatever her personality was, but they liked her and they continued to use her for the next three years on the show, so I got a payment every time that character appeared. On Hercules and Xena, <laughs> there, were, there were multiple uh, characters that we were always drawing from the, the universe of Greek gods. Yeah. So whatever writer would write the first uh, one of those uh, gods or, or characters would uh, get payments from then on. In the case of Voyager, Star Trek Voyager, I pitched, uh, the, as I say, I was the first writer to, to get a freelance assignment over there. And uh, I pitched a story about, if you knew the background of the show, it was uh, a Star the, the ship got propelled billions of light years uh, into a strange uh, galaxy and they're trying to find their way home and there's, there's a, there was an enemy crew that uh, was incorporated into the, the main crew uh, called the Maquis, kind of renegades who had broken off from the Federation and now they're, now they're a part of uh, the, the ship. So I said, well, what if, what if one of those characters, and I 
they gave her a name and said, oh, she's a, uh, we think she's a Bajoran, but she's actually an enemy spy, a, a Cardassian, which was an enemy race who had infiltrated the Maquis mm-hmm. on a, you know, on, on, a, on a spy mission. So she's a bad guy, but she's uh, among this group. But what do we do with her now that she's uh, on Voyager? So, you know, Mike Pillar really sparked to that idea. So that became the assignment. But ultimately, her name ended up being changed from whatever I had pitched. But it, the essence of what I just pitched is what that character became. And she became a hugely popular the actress, Martha Hackett, was, was excellent. And uh, she became a recurring villain on the show she, after she split from Voyager with some enemy aliens. Uh, continued to chase uh, Voyager for the next five, six years, right? And she recurred 12 times, I think. So I should have received 12 uh, payments. But I didn't because uh, what happened was when they were doing my episode in the first season, they're saying, well, this character, Seska, is such an important character. We don't, have, we don't want her coming out of the blue for Paul's story. So they seeded her um, into a few episodes before mine just, just to establish her as a member of that Maquis crew. So whatever episode she was in the first time, whatever writer wrote that episode, and they were told to put this uh, character in there, that writer lucked out with the next uh, 12 or 13 character creation fees. It's, you know, look, I could have objected. I could have gone to the writer's guild and made a case of it. But you can't fight every battle. You know, you have to pick. You, uh, you, have, you have to pick your battles. And as you related last time you were on, Paul, you win some, you lose some. So you, you may have lost out on that particular character creation fee, but uh, there, there there are other battles you won, one of which uh, occurred around the same time. You did a, I, I, again, this is something I didn't know about. You did a British show uh, for Jerry Anderson. You got a full overseas credit uh, written by credit, although you had to fight for that. Well, you often have to fight for your credit in television because as a freelancer, you're, you're usually rewritten by staff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes uh, the staff... Uh, puts in their own names up for arbitration. Some producers are notorious for that. They yeah. want their name on everything, you know. So, But the Writers Guild protects, uh, they're, they're fair with, with doing arbitrations and, and giving credit where credit is due to the writer who really contributed uh, the majority of work that ends up on screen. Uh, as far as that, that particular show is called Space Precinct. It was produced out of, out of England by Jerry Anderson, who did those puppet shows mm-hmm. uh, like and, and so forth, uh, and it started an American, Ted Shackelford. At the time I was writing it, it hadn't been cast yet. It was supposed to have been Dennis Farina, and I was all excited about writing for Dennis Farina, yeah. but it ended up uh, being him for whatever reason. Um, and it was a mix of puppets, sort of human puppets or, you know, <laughs> aliens with bizarre animatronic-operated heads and antenna, and the human actors played by Ted Shackelford and, and one or two others. Uh, produced in England, but they went out of their way to hire American writers. I don't know why they wanted the show to to feel like Star Trek. I guess it was it was a police uh, precinct in space. So it was kind of Hill Street Blues meets Star Trek. <laughs> and I was just coming off those recent Star Trek credits that I talked about. Yeah. So uh, I get you know I get called into that show. They didn't even have offices here. They had a team of writer producers that they'd hired, but they they operated out of their homes. So. Um, we'd be on the speakerphone to the people in England, but uh, they were building the sets at that point. It was a big, uh, you know, they put a lot of money behind this show. Yeah. I didn't know what it was going to look like. And by the time, you know, it finally aired, it was pretty uh, freaky, but it had a big fan base of college kids 
Uh, it aired at like two in the morning, you know, as many syndicated shows did in those days. And maybe it has its fans to this day. I, I don't know. It's not one I get asked about a lot, but I thought it was worth uh, a chapter in the book. So if you remember Space Precinct, I have a few things to say about that show. I only did the one episode, but I actually think it turned out well. But yes, I had a fight for credit on that one, and I was awarded full written by. And because it is a British show, uh, it makes you an internationally renowned television writer. <laughs> well, or if you say so. <laughs> it's not one I've gotten a lot of residuals for over the years. I never, I don't think it ever went into reruns. Yes. Well, you know, but again. I can say internationally renowned television writer-producer Paul Ryber Coyle is with us via Zoom. Paul's memoir, Swords, Starships, and Superheroes, from Star Trek to Xena to Hercules, is the story of Paul's 40-plus year journey as a writer, story editor, and producer for network, cable, and syndicated television. Paul will be back next week to talk specifically about his years as a staff writer on Xena Warrior Princess, and how that led to his writing for both Xena as well as Hercules, The Incredible Journeys. We'll play part four of our conversation with Paul Robert Coyle next week on TV Confidential. In the meantime, Swords, Starships, and Superheroes is available in paperback and as an ebook through Jacobs Brown Media Group. You can also find it Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. We'll take a look at This Week in TV History right after this. Story Salon is Los Angeles' longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative, something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says, tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive preserving the audio from television's first three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. The golden and silver age of television. For more information, go to atvaudio.com. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash TV Confidential or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415 415- 886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.